John Bullard is a legend at my alma mater, Walford College. By the time Rebecca and I got there, he had already been a member of the religion faculty for something like three decades. He's not a legend just because of his tenure or because of his intelligence. He is a legend because he was notoriously cantankerous. And he remained that way right up until his death earlier this year. For years, he would all but refuse to write a student a reference to a divinity school or a seminary besides his own alma mater of Yale, hoping to push all of us into his footsteps. Every December, he would play the organ uh, at the end-of-term uh, Christmas carol sing in the chapel. And if a student shouted out the number of a hymn that he didn't like, he would simply shout out a different number of a hymn that he did like and start playing it. One day in class, I remember he showed us a film on biblical archaeology. The film ended. The credits ended. The VCR all of a sudden clicked in and started to rewind the tape automatically. Kids, when you get home, ask your parents. They'll explain to you what I'm talking about right now. Well, we turned around to see what Dr. Bullard was doing, only to find him sound asleep in his chair. When one of the young women in the class went to try and rouse him, he woke with a start, looked up at her, looked at all of us, and almost shouted, Can't you people see that the movie's over? Why are you still here? Go home. But some of Dr. Bullard's best stories had to do with his relationship with his cat. The cat, it turns out, was just as cantankerous as he was. If he was working at home and the cat wanted attention, it would jump up onto his desk and just slowly knock things off until he finally put down whatever he was doing. Dr. Bullard was practicing his music at his piano. The, the cat would jump onto the bench and worm his way into his lap so that he could no longer play without giving it a scratch first and putting it down. More than once, according to Dr. Bullard, he had to look at that cat and say, Listen, I know what it is that you are doing, and I know what it is that you want, but I am not here to do your bidding. I know that in ancient Egypt, your ancestors were worshipped as gods. But my ancestors, we did not worship the gods of Egypt. We worshipped the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now go away. Our text for this morning, the story of God providing the manna from heaven, is a perfect illustration of this decision that the ancient Israelites had to make for themselves, whether they were going to remain faithful to the God who had brought them out of Egypt, or whether they were going to revert back to their Egyptian ways. 
As the scene opens, the Israelites are so hungry and so scared that they actually want to return to Egypt, go back to their bondage. If only we died in the lands of Egypt. There we sat by the flesh pots and we had our fill of bread. But you, they say to Moses, you brought us out here into this wilderness to kill us by starvation. But the next thing we know in the story, God tells Moses that he'll act. God tells Moses that the Israelites are going to get exactly what they've been clamoring for. Bread and meat, quails in the evening, and manna, bread in the morning. But God then adds this. In this way, God says, by providing the food for the Israelites, I will test whether they will follow my instruction or not. And these are God's instructions to them. There are two parts. The first is to take only what you need, but nothing more. Don't be greedy. Don't be selfish. Do not hoard for yourself. And the second part, God says, is for them to maintain the Sabbath through all this, to rest, trusting that enough will indeed be enough. So these are God's two instructions to the Israelites. Do not hoard and do not work yourselves to death. As we all know, however, from the story... The Israelites there in the wilderness fail the test. As soon as they find that there's manna available to be harvested, they fail to take only what they need, instead taking everything they want, anything they can get their hands on, only to learn that their hoard of manna then rots. It attracts vermin. It stinks up the place. Their homes, their community, their very lives are literally spoiled by their hoarding. And that's their first mistake. Then, when the Sabbath rolls around, the Israelites make a second. Instead of listening to their Lord and trusting that enough will in fact be enough, They go out on the day of rest and want to work some more. But of course, their work doesn't give them what they want. There's no manna in the fields to gather, so they simply end up returning home restless and unsatisfied. I confess to you all that I can see myself in these Israelites. And their continual hoarding after enough has already been acquired. And their compulsion to continue to go work instead of allowing themselves the needed rest. I suspect that some of you may see yourselves in this picture as well. And there are a lot of ways that we can go with this. 
Some people, for example, might preach this text and shape it into a story about the Israelites' lack of faith. They didn't trust God when they were told to only gather as much as they were needed, and they didn't trust God when they were told to stay home and rest on the Sabbath. Other people, other people might preach this text and shape it into a story about greed. The Israelites are insatiable, they are gluttonous, they are selfishly gathering up all of the manna all of the time. 24 7, 365. But I want to approach the text in a different way. I want to read this as a story about anxiety. You see, I want to argue that the Israelites do what they do not because they're greedy, but because they're anxious. It's why they hoard. It's why they can't help themselves and work all the time. Why they cannot stop. And I think that that same anxiety is something that is within all of us and that surrounds all of us in our community and in our world. I'll tell you a quick story. Years ago, when I was back in North Carolina serving a church as an associate pastor, part of my job was to take care of a youth group. Part of that, of course, was planning retreats. And so one fall, I put together a retreat that focused on the gift of Sabbath. The fact that written into what it means to be human, to be created in God's image, is to have rest built into the logic of our lives. I mean, we forget this a lot. But the Sabbath commandment is one of the ten commandments. It's up there on the same pedestal as don't kill people and do not steal. The command to rest to step away from work is literally one of the foundational aspects of what it means to be God's people. So I planned the weekend because even at their young age, I could already see my youth overcome with stress and anxiety from their schoolwork and their lives. So I put together a couple of lessons, a few activities. I drove them to the mountains, and I built the rest of the weekend around free time. They could do whatever they want to. They could hike. They could play games. They could hang out together. They could take a nap. They could do anything that they wanted to do. And do you know how they spent their free time? Not every single one of them. But enough of them. Do you know what they did with the free time that they had there in the North Carolina mountains? They did schoolwork. They studied. Even on a retreat focused on the topic of setting aside time to rest, to rejuvenate, these kids could not stop. 
They couldn't step away from their work. They were enslaved to the anxieties that they had about achievement or accomplishment or excellence or whatever term you want to give it. And they learned that somewhere. And so did we. Just like them, we find it difficult to step away. Instead of trusting that the work that we've done is sufficient, we too, just like those teenagers, just like the Israelites back in the Exodus, we too find ourselves compelled to return to our work. We can't let go. We don't switch off. We choose to be the job. We grind and we grind And we grind, and at the end of the day, all that we have is the fact that we ourselves are ground down, and inevitably, there is always still more work to be done. But something inside can't let go. Something doesn't want to switch off. Just like the Israelites in Exodus, who even though they know better, insist on trying to gather more manna on the Sabbath. We remain enslaved to our anxieties about our lives. And then secondly, just like those Israelites, instead of knowing how or when to be satisfied, we too hoard possessions until they literally take over our lives and our homes. We think that if we can get just a little bit more, we will finally be at peace. But of course that doesn't work. So we go for just a little bit more, which doesn't work, and a little bit more again, which doesn't work, and we try and we try, and it never works, and it never will. And all it ever does at the end of the day is spoil, just like the hoarded manna. It spoils our lives, it spoils our homes, so that even there we are unable to rest easy. Our piles of stuff simply add to the anxiety that we were already feeling before we got there anyway. And in ways large and ways small, the things that we own end up owning us. We become slaves not to a taskmaster back in Egypt, but to ourselves. We become our own taskmasters. Which brings us to this morning's sermon title, Slaves or Sabbath Keepers. The title is borrowed from Ellen Davis, who's a professor at Duke Divinity School. In her article, Dr. Davis argued that one of the major themes of the entire book of Exodus is the contrast between healthy and unhealthy work, and then how the Israelites have to figure out how to distinguish between the two, and then choose one 
and not the other. It's the Exodus, of course. So the Israelites aren't anymore under the control of Pharaoh, but that does not mean that they are necessarily free. They have to learn to be free. They have to learn not to be slaves. And they have to learn to be Sabbath keepers. People who work, hopefully people who find their work meaningful and joyous, but at the same time, people who know how to hold their work lightly. People who know how to step away from their work and rest. And therefore, people who know how to hold their lives and their possessions lightly as well. Believing that they don't always have to work or to struggle or to coordinate or to be in control that their lives and that their world itself are not in their hands. But that their lives and their world are in the hands of a God who loves them very very much. And it's that love that undergirds the Sabbath promise. So that was the choice before the Israelites in the Exodus. Slaves or Sabbath keepers. And my friends, that is the choice that you and I face on this morning and tomorrow morning and on every other morning of every other day of our lives. Amen.